Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am thrilled to have with me today one of my colleagues and an international expert on pain, Dr. Stephen Cohen. Dr. Cohen is the chief of pain medicine here at Johns Hopkins and a professor of anesthesiology here at Johns Hopkins and at the the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. He is incredibly well published and respected throughout the world for his work on chronic pain. And we are, I think, really lucky to have him here to talk about it today. And what we're going to do is talk about just a general kind of overview of pain, what it is, what the different aspects of it are, and what kind of things are being done to try to address it. And then we're, our hope, if we can convince him, is to get Dr. Cohen to come back on subsequent days for subsequent episodes to talk about some specifics within that greater realm of pain. So Dr. Cohen, welcome to the show. That's the uh, that's the best introduction I could could have hoped for, Jed. Thanks. Well, I, it's absolutely a pleasure to have you here. So, Steve, actually, before we jump into pain, let me just ask you to say a few words about yourself. Uh, you know, kind of what you do. I kind of described it, but just give people a little bit of an idea of what your practice looks like, what your research focuses on, and then how you got where you are now. Um, sure, Jed. So I'm. Um, uh, the division chief of pain medicine at Johns Hopkins. I have joint faculty appointment at Walter Reed and the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. So I retired as a as colonel in the Army Reserve, and I have a, a son at the uh, the military academy. I spend about fifty percent of my time doing clinical work and about fifty percent of my time doing research. I have a whole bunch of NIH and Department of Defense grants as the principal investigator. The biggest areas of my research are spinal pain, specifically facet joint denervation, epidural steroid injections, conservative measures, and uh, post-traumatic pain. Great. And Steve, you know, you you have obviously... um written some of the the national and even international guidelines and a variety of things in pain. You're a really a central figure in the, the in, you know, internationally, as I said, how, you know, if there are listeners sitting out there thinking, yeah, I, that's what I want to be someday. Right. I mean, how did you get there? Was it, was it, um, you know, kind of finding your focus in different research areas and then just kind of plugging away until you became the, the man or how did it happen? So I'm actually asked this question um, quite often and I wish I had a uh, kind of a, a blueprint that everyone could follow. So you know that, that we have a lot of very ambitious and accomplished people at, at Johns Hopkins. Most of them have done, um, you know, have a PhD or a master's degree, or they did the T32 program. I didn't do um, any of those. So 
you know, I really started to get heavily involved in, in research after 9-11. And so there was a lot of money. There were a lot of people with pain. One of the most pivotal articles I ever did, no one knows about because it's not, no one in pain knows about because it's not primarily a pain article, but we looked at over 40,000 evacuees from Iraq and Afghanistan. So everyone who is evacuated, we categorize them into in, into reasons such as neurological, combat-related, psychiatric, spinal, there was infectious disease, surgical, um, non-surgical, cardiac, and, and pain was always one of the top five. But most importantly, if you had back pain, you were extremely unlikely to ever return to your unit. And so that's an abject failure for the medical corps because the mission of the medical corps is to restore the, the fighting force. The only things that had lower return to duty rates than back pain were psychiatric conditions and combat related injuries. So back in 2007, Ron White and I, we, we engineered the opening of the first pain clinic ever in Iraq. And, and we started to do a lot of research grants started to come my way. I learned a lot from people like Dr. Raja. Um, and it was really a lot of trial and error. And I had a lot of help along the way. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I think so much of it is, um, or does seem to be when I talk to, to people like you who've really had incredible success is one kind of saying yes to the opportunities that come along and keeping your mind open to be flexible where you may not have been doing things before. And two, really looking for that mentorship because, you know, I've never met anyone who's achieved incredible success who didn't have really strong mentorship along the way um, as they built up their own career. So that's great advice. All right. So, and, uh, yeah, and yeah. So, you know, for that article um, that, you know, that was published the cover of a special edition of Lancet back in 2010, Charlie Brown in, in our department helped out. So at mm -hmm. one point he was very interested in, in going into, into pain and this is one thing that I that I talk about with my, you know, my son. I said, you know, when people ask you to do something, you know, volunteer, especially, you know, being in the military, if somebody asks you, they're they're really, you know, I told him I want him to be the first person to raise their hand when they're asking someone for, for a volunteer. That, that's really important to be to be reliable and, and to to take these opportunities. Yeah, that's great advice. Thanks, Steve. All right. So let's jump in. And talk about, and it's a huge question, obviously, but, you know, if you had to kind of define it, what, what is pain? Let's start really simple. What is pain? So fortunately, I don't have to uh, define that. That's been defined by the International Association for the Study of Pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Okay, so that's what pain is. Now, that's obviously a textbook definition, as you said. It may or may not kind of resonate with people. How do people interpret pain? And, and what we might be getting into here is, is the kind of biopsychosocial model of pain. So, you know, kind of give me an idea of what that means. What is that? And how does that kind of make that connection between the textbook definition of pain and what individuals actually experience? So great question. So the biopsychosocial model postulates pain and disability as multidimensional dynamic interactions among biological, psychological, and social factors. And these factors reciprocally influence each other. So almost everyone knows that depression, anxiety, poor sleep, and adverse social conditions, things like divorce, you know, can be the result of chronic pain. But what people often don't appreciate is that if you're depressed or anxious, if you don't sleep well, if you don't have a strong social network and you get injured, that you're more likely to transition to chronic pain from acute pain. So this has really important implications. It also strongly supports an interdisciplinary care model. Right. So when we say maybe let's break down each of those pieces. So bio, psycho and social, right? So bio is the actual biologic tissue damage or whatever it is that's causing the pain. Is that right? Correct. And then the psycho, the psychology, the psychological part is, as you said, right? The fact that either pain can lead to psychological poor outcomes or 
having comorbidities psychologically can make you more prone to chronic pain. It's not just those things that I, um, you know, that I mentioned, but it, it's other things such as your coping skills, resilience, um, whether or not you catastrophize. Okay. And then social. So these are people support networks and, and things like that, that impact the, all of this. Uh, right. That that's correct. Um, so social support networks, um, and they, they can have positive, they can have negative, um, influences. So we see people, I see it, um, you know, in, in my close social network, I see people with enabling behavior sometimes. And tell me a little more when you say enabling behavior, what do you mean? Um, so, um, so basically, uh, someone who's close to a patient, I, I can probably give you a, a better example. So let's say that someone is very somatically focused on their pain. They're not engaging in physical activity. They won't go out. They're, um, they're, they're not physically active. These things, they're depressed. They're, they're catastrophizing. So these things are part of a, a vicious circle. And so some people can say, you know, hey, you got to get out. Um, let's go for a walk. This isn't this isn't the worst thing. You can get over it. And other people really kind of contribute contribute to that. We also see this with um, with opioid use. So sometimes, so so there are we have uh, relatives or spouses of of some patients who are misusing opioids. And they're pointing this out and they're saying, you can't do this. We have to draw a red line. And there are others who are, you know, they come into an interview with, with a patient and they're saying, but you don't understand, doctor. Um, you know, this is the worst pain. You don't understand that without these medications, you know, she can't, um, you know, my wife or, or my friend can't function. Okay. So that's the enabling behavior. Okay. So, there are, I, I'm sure, different categories of pain. If we were going to go through and say what different types of pain there are, what, what are the categories? So um, you can categorize pain many different ways. So you can categorize pain by severity, like on a zero to 10 pain scale. You can categorize pain by acuity. And that's really important because it it that's the major determinant for prognosis. So the longer someone has pain, the more difficult it is to treat because of changes that ensue in the nervous system, i.e. neuroplasticity. So acute pain confers evolutionary survival value while chronic pain is often viewed in both biomedical and biopsychosocial models as a disease by itself. But probably the most important way to classify pain is mechanistically. And that's because categorizing pain this way is, affects treatment decision, decisions at all levels of care. Um, so nociceptive pain results from activity in neural pathways secondary to actual stimuli or stimuli that might potentially damage tissue. So nociceptive pain is the most common form of chronic pain. It includes post-surgical pain, arthritis, um, axial back pain from degenerative conditions. Neuropathic pain is defined by the International Association for the Study of Pain as pain caused by damage or disease affecting the somatosensory system. So compared with neuropathic pain, uh, compared with nociceptive pain, neuropathic pain is typically associated with sensory abnormalities that might occur in the distribution of a nerve or a nerve root, such as numbness, allodynia. It's associated with more prominent pain paroxysms, uh, and there are often focal neurological findings. So examples include diabetic neuropathy, post-herpetic neuralgia, and sciatica. And there's, there's some literature, this is a little controversial, but there's some literature that shows that for the same degree of disease burden or severity, that neuropathic pain is associated with greater decrements in quality of life than nociceptive pain. The, the newest category of, of pain is called nosoplastic pain. 
Um, and this is pain that arises from abnormal processing of pain signals without any clear evidence of tissue damage or pathology involving the somatosensory syndrome. So these were previously noticed as functional pain syndromes. They didn't really fall neatly into one category. They included things like fibromyalgia, irritable back syndrome. Some people even consider migraines and nonspecific back and neck pain to be forms of nosoplastic pain. So one of the hallmarks of, of nosoplastic pain is there's no biomarkers and it's associated with, with lots of um, very prominent um, affective motivational uh, component of, of pain. They often have lots of other associated conditions um, such as multiple chemical sensitivity. Um, the conditions often co-occur. I think it's also important to, to state that um, some people consider that these different categories of pain to represent different points on a pain continuum. So this can explain why NSAIDs, which are not recommended in any guidelines for neuropathic or nosoplastic pain, can sometimes be effective for these types of pain. And adjuvants such as anticonvulsants, which are only approved for neuropathic and sometimes nosoplastic pain, can in some cases prevent acute pain after surgery. And I'll end by saying that, that you know, there are many types of pain are actually mixed. For example, sciatica. So nerve involvement in people with lumbar radiculopathy would involve, you know, pain shooting into the leg, the leg might be numb or be associated with paresthesias. But people with sciatica generally over 80% also have back pain because the conditions that cause radicular pain such as a herniated disc or facet joint hypertrophy or spinal, spinal canal stenosis, they also cause axial pain. So the disc itself that, that herniates can cause back pain, but it can also lead to nerve root irritation. Okay, so that's really helpful. So let me ask you a few questions as we dig into that. One, you mentioned that this is a mechanistic way to describe pain. There's also acuity. Within each of these categories, can you have acute and chronic? I mean, clearly no susceptive pain, you can have acute and chronic. Um, is it true also for neuropathic and nosoplastic pain that you can have acute and chronic types? Yes, um, so that's correct. But for, for, so a lot of the nosoplastic conditions are syndromes, which means that there's not specific pathophysiological mechanisms. So a condition such as fibro, a syndrome such as fibromyalgia, we may actually learn in 20 years that it's five different diseases. So, but, so some of the nosoplastic conditions have time limits on them. So you have to have this condition for, for three months. So for neuropathic pain, clearly you can have nerve injury, you can have a spinal cord injury, um, during regional anesthesia, somebody can, can hit a nerve and you can have neuropathic pain that, that's acute or, or chronic. Okay. So when I think of acute pain, like you said earlier, for nociceptive pain, let's use that as an example, that's very adaptive and very important for survival. In fact, people who can't feel pain don't tend to survive very long, right? Because you need it. You, you grab that hot kettle or you, you know, step on a, you know, a hot uh, bed of you know, coals, <laughs> why, don't know why you would do that, but that any of these things, right, you, you want your body to react, to feel it, and to pull back. So acute pain in many ways is adaptive. Chronic pain, we think, is not, is acute, I guess, acute neuropathic pain. I mean, the, the most acute kind, like you said, would be like someone hits a nerve with a needle while they're doing a procedure. You feel that zing, and it's gone as soon as they move the needle. So that's acute, kind of acute and gone. But in the sense of the acute I guess I, I think of neuropathic and certainly, like you were saying, nosoplastic as having acute, they can be acute in the sense that they have to start sometime, but they tend to, I think, be more longer lasting, right? Is that accurate or, or no? Right. So it, obviously there's lots of factors that go into it, but when, when somebody twists their ankle or they have a minor surgical procedure or they get stung by a bee, most people get better. Right. But, but not everyone. And so in this period of, of four weeks or six weeks or seven weeks, 
it's sometimes hard to figure out whether these are just slow healers or is this something qualitatively different? Are they transitioning to, to chronic pain because you might want to, to use um, interventions? But after okay. nerve injury, yeah. after, after nerve injury, uh, still, most people will recover if it's not a huge major nerve injury like, like spinal cord transection. Um, but the chance of transitioning to chronic pain is greater than if it's non-nerve injury. And what really separates, you know, there are no separate pathways in your body for neuropathic or nosoplastic or nociceptive pain. So what really separates neuropathic pain and nociceptive pain is you don't have transduction. So with transduction, you're directly injuring or stimulating nerves. And with no, with no susceptive pain, you have to transduce maybe a mechanical or a temperature signal into an electrical signal. But also prognosis. Again, after nerve injury, there's a higher chance that a, a person won't completely get better. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me that no susceptive pain more commonly than neuropathic or nosoplastic pain people will recover from. Um, and these other ones less likely or, or at least are more likely to go on to chronic pain. So let's talk about that transition. Let's use no susceptive pain, the one people are going to be most familiar with. Do we know why does, why does some injuries uh, go on to develop in chronic pain, whereas that same injury for many other people might just recover and, and not be an issue? So this is really important for anesthesiologists and, and surgeons. So it's, it's multifactorial. So clearly there's a genetic component. So it, it depends also on the extent of injury. So there are certain types of surgery like thoracotomy or radical mastectomy that are more likely to lead to, to chronic pain than, than others. So the extent of injury, whether or not somebody had pain before surgery in that area, and not only in that area, but if somebody, if you have two people, everything being equal, and one person has three coexisting chronic pain conditions and the other has none, the person with coexisting pain is more likely to not get better after an injury. And that might just be reflective of, of their nervous system. Their nervous system might be more sensitive. Psychological factors are really important. As I mentioned before, things like post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, anxiety, depression, um, coping skills, uh, somatization traits. Th these are, are very important uh, predictors. Opioid use. If somebody's on opioids before surgery, they're a lot less, they're a lot more likely to have persistent post-surgical pain. And there might be many reasons for that. People might be on, on opioids because they're more sensitive to pain in general or because they can't tolerate the same levels of, of pain. I know that there's some work um, out from Stanford that shows that, that people who like opioids more, who have a, a better, a more euphoric reaction with opioids than people who, who don't, for the same stimulus, they're more likely to say that they have more pain. Hmm. And it might be a subconscious psychological thing. And I think most people are aware that, that opioids can also sensitize one's nervous system, which is, the term is called opioid-induced hyperalgesia through its stimulation of NMDA receptors. Yeah, okay. And then, you know, how do you, I think pain is such a difficult thing, right? If we're talking about kidney injury, you know, you measure something like creatinine and you see that there's kidney injury, right? And the worse the injury, the higher the creatinine. But pain, the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the only measurement is subjective, right? You say to someone, how much pain do you have? And they give you a number. And, you know, there's no way to, to there's nothing objective to measure, right? Or, or am I wrong about that? So that, that's a, a big area of, of research. That's one of the NIH's top pain research priorities is to identify biomarkers. So it might be chemokines or, or cytokines. It, 
I guess one of the, the biggest areas is on functional imaging. Okay. Yeah. To try to figure out how to quantify this because ultimately, you know, we just, we say, look, we're compassionate physicians. And if a patient says they're in pain, we, we want to believe them and treat their pain. Um, but it, I would imagine it makes research difficult because ultimately, you know, you, you have a harder time with a, without an objective kind of measurement, which is why, as you say, I think the priority there is to try to find something. Um, okay. So, the transition from acute to chronic, you talked about, it's dependent, multifactorial, depends on a lot of things. Is that also true for neuropathic pain? Who's going to have kind of persistent, long-lasting neuropathic pain compared to people who may have, you know, may have some neuropathic pain that then resolves? That's correct. The, the risk factors are the same. Although, again, nerve injury is more likely to lead in general to 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 chronic pain than non-nervous tissue injury. Yeah. Okay. And then what about nosoplastic? For example, if somebody has fibromyalgia, do they, is that something you can be cured of and then no longer have it? Or are these lifelong conditions? So we recently published a, a pain series in Lancet. And one of the articles was on these nosoplastic pain conditions. And so for these conditions, because there are no biomarkers and a lot of them are, are subjective. So people have to have some of the criteria at a specific time point, like when, when they're seeing a, a physician, for example, complex regional pain syndrome type one, which is which some people consider to be a form of nosoplastic pain, but it's an outlier because there are physical manifestations. But the patient has to have these physical. So there are three symptoms out of four categories and two signs out of the same four categories. And so someone can come in to see me um, you know, on, on Monday and I don't, I can't detect those physical signs. So there's no temperature difference. The color looks the same. And so they don't have the diagnosis of CRPS, but two weeks later when they go see their primary care doctor, they may have those. And, and so they might, so, so, so there's always kind of um, some, inherent subjectivity, I guess, in, in the diagnosis of these conditions. But when we were looking at some of the cohort studies for these conditions, people often get better. They take a long time to diagnose, so usually much longer. For some of them, it can take years and multiple, you know, or visits to multiple doctors before they're diagnosed. And like I say, one of the problems with the nosoplastic conditions is because they're syndromes, they tend to be syndromes and not diseases. There are no specific mechanisms. So it's not like someone who has pneumonia, we can identify a bacteria, we can give them an antibiotic, or they have an autoimmune condition, we can give them you know, immunosuppressive therapy. So it's widely accepted that mechanism-based treatment of pain is superior to disease or etiologic or symptom-based treatment of pain. The problem with these nosoplastic conditions is there's no really distinct pathophysiological mechanisms. Even in practice, it's really hard to, everyone says mechanism-based treatment of pain is, is better. We know this, it's self-evident, some people say, but, but for a frontline physician, it's really hard, sometimes impossible to identify specific mechanisms. And so when you say mechanistic treatment of pain, give me an example. So if you have nerve injury, um, there's often proliferation of sodium channels, um, like, you know, near the DA, DRG around the peripheral nerve. So if we could identify those specific sodium channels and then administer sodium channel blockers, then that would be an example of mechanistic-based treatment of pain. Or if somebody had shingles and they have, so people with neuropathic pain often have allodynia. 
So pain to normally non-painful stimuli. But there's different mechanisms that people could have allodynia. You can have something like a phenotypic switch where a beta fibers, which normally transmit light touch, um, they're transmitting light touch, but you know, there's, there's reorganization in the spinal cord. So that's perceived as painful. Or you could just have, you know, lower pain thresholds to mechanical stimuli. And so for people who have that, like allodynia, evoke pain, lower you know, pain thresholds, you know, we might be able to put a lidocaine patch on it. That might work very well. But it wouldn't work well when allodynia is from reorganization in the central nervous system. Right. Okay. So that's what you mean by mechanistic treatment. Then that makes a lot of sense. All right. Stay with us. We'll be right back and we'll talk about treatment modalities for different types of pain. Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Okay, we're back with Dr. Steve Cohen. So let's go through and see if you can give me some examples of treatment modalities for different, ty- different mechanistic um, types of pain. So let's start with nociceptive, right? I mean, there's clearly medications, um, and those include everything from Tylenol, ibuprofen, other NSAIDs, through opiates, um, and there are other treatments, but how do you think about the treatment modalities for nociceptive pain? So again, nociceptive pain is a very broad category, so it, it really um, depends. But NSAIDs are, are often considered to be effective treatment, but they have lots of side effects. So NICE from the UK recently came out with guidelines, and the only medication that they recommended what were antidepressants. The only medication class they recommended were antidepressants. And when we came out with the series, there were a couple of editorials. One was on the NICE guidelines and, and people from the United Kingdom said, you know, this is problematic. It's not consistent with personalized medicine. So NSAIDs, people with acute spinal pain, um, muscle relaxants may be effective. They have increased muscle uh, tension. Um, Opioids can be effective, and this doesn't include things like um, like nerve blocks, right? You know, so, in, in interventions. Opioids is a, is a big topic. Obviously, you could easily do an entire episode on that. But you said before, you know, being on opiates before, for example, surgery makes you more likely to develop chronic pain. I think there's a lot of thought that chronic use of opiates can actually cause hyperalgesia. But you'll tell me if I'm wrong about that. What? How do we think of opiates? Good for kind of a 
short course for acute pain, but not good for chronic pain? How do you think about opiates for treatment of, of nociceptive pain? So 15, 15 years ago, you would see it written frequently that neuropathic pain is less responsive to opioids than nociceptive pain. That's probably not true, um, later research. So opioids are, are clearly the gold standard by which everything is compared for acute pain. My opinion, and uh, we wrote something maybe two years ago, uh, uh, a commentary, a short review in, in Mayo Clinic Proceedings with Mike Houghton, who's a pain doctor and a, an anesthesiologist and a psychiatrist. And it was called the pill and the pendulum. And so the, the premise was that, you know, we have all these different tools in our toolbox. And I think a, a good physician needs to be able to utilize, you know, all of, all of these, these tools. So for some people, opioids are the only thing that will help with, with chronic pain. So Nora Volkow, who's the, the director of NIDA at the, you know, at the NIA says, you know, in well-selected candidates, the incidence of addiction is definitely less than 8%. And there's a whole bunch of other systematic reviews and, and they say it's probably somewhere about 5%, but it's not 5% across the board. So when somebody has a risk, you have to understand like uh, odds ratios and, and risk ratio. It, it might be the risk of developing aberrant drug seeking behavior or addiction might be 40 or 50% in certain populations. Young people risk taking those with poorly controlled concomitant psychiatric conditions, people with a family um, history. And it, it also depends on the drug because there are certain people who like certain drugs more than, than others. And then in other people, the risk might be pretty close to zero. And the problem is, is having, is being able to stratify that risk and then you can make an informed decision. So I use opioids in a pretty small percentage of, of my population after they've failed, um, you know, other more conservative treatments I risk stratify them and they have to be really um, low on the risk stratification. I have to have specific benchmarks for success. I have an exit strategy. This is, these are our goals. If we don't meet them, then, you know, this is the strategy that we're going to use. We may go up higher. We may switch to another opioid, but at some point we're going to say this is, this is a failed treatment. And do you have a goal of, of a course? In other words, let's say someone's getting relief from their opiates for their, their chronic nociceptive pain. Is it is the goal to keep them then on it or to at some point try to get them off it? How do you manage that? Because, you know, if, if long-term use can have, you know, consequences like um, hyperalgesia or other things, uh, you know, is the goal to get them off it eventually? So with... With almost all drugs, I usually try to have a, um, I'll, I'll try, if someone's on gabapentin for neuropathic pain or they're on uh, an SNRI or a tricyclic antidepressant for between six months and 12 months and they're doing well, I'll usually try to see if I can decrease it. And if I can't, I'll go up. I mean, I, I ask these questions, you know, have you ever not taken the opioids? Um, or, or missed a dose is your pain worse. And, um, but, you know, viewing chronic pain as a disease model, similar to hypertension or diabetes, people may need to stay on these, these medications in, in the long term. But there has to be continued surveillance. Okay. So let's turn to another kind of treatment for nociceptive pain, uh, like for lower back pain. Um, sometimes you will do, um, other kind of interventions. Tell me about, about that. So again, I think it's, it's important to, to categorize the pain because the, the surgical and the non-surgical intervention, interventional treatments are different for neuropathic, i.e. radicular pain and non-neuropathic pain. So this is what I, I teach our, our trainings. So if somebody has radicular pain, 
the most common non-interventional, uh, the, the most common interventional treatment in the world is epidural steroids. And we do in the United States about 10 million of these injections each year. So, so it's huge. Epidurals can actually relieve non-radicular pain, but the number needed to treat is very, very high. So they're not indicated. So in many of these patients, the risks may outweigh the, the benefits. For people with non-neuropathic pain, and the gold standard for separating people into neuropathic back pain and non-neuropathic back pain is physician, because the physician can do physical exam tests, can look at MRIs, can order EMG and nerve conduction studies, but there's all sorts of instruments that can be helpful to primary care doctors. So where they just give it to a patient, the patient um, answers a, a question, they just score it, and then it'll say, you know, um, likely neuropathic pain, possibly neuropathic pain, unlikely to be neuropathic pain. So one of the most common is pain detect, but there are others such as SSLONs. If the, uh, for low back pain, uh, it's, it's really all over the place in terms of the prevalence of, you know, the prevalence of different etiologies. So in younger people, the discs are probably more likely to be a source of pain. Unfortunately, there is no great treatments for, for disc pain. Um, people used to, to burn the discs. That was one of the first areas of research I ever did, something called intradiscal electrothermal therapy, where we threaded an electrode around a disc and burned the pain receptors. And that worked really well for a short period of time, but it didn't work in the long term, and, and there are lots of risks. There is surgical procedures, spine fusion. If you don't have you know, uh, posterior element pain, they'll do a disc replacement on, on one or, or two levels. Now, uh, a big thing is, is basovertebral nerve ablation, which seeks to treat pain from the vertebral end plates. We have a study that's on hold. It's, it did receive, uh, IRB approval at Johns Hopkins as a multi-center study. It's funded by the Department of Defense. It's looking at stem cells, but a court ruling three months ago kind of put everything on, on hold. But there's no really great treatments for, for disc pain. I had been the chair last year of the lumbar facet guidelines, and that's what I'm working on right now, cervical facet guidelines. Um, they were published in regional anesthesia and pain medicine. And uh, in young people, Muscles and discs are much more likely to be a source of pain or the sacroiliac joint, um, you know, from injuries than facet joints. But in older people, the prevalence of facet joint pain increases and the prevalence of, of disc pain and muscle pain decreases. So if you happen to have facet pain, you're, you're lucky because there's a minimally invasive effective treatment. So radiofrequency ablation. Okay. So is it fair to say that for no susceptive pain, let's say you have an injury to your SI joint or you tore a ligament in your SI joint, you know, that's no susceptive and there are intervent you can do, right? Let's say that because of that injury, there's a lot of inflammation and it's causing pain. You could do a steroid injection that might help. So there are injections, but most of the time when you think about you know, like epidural steroid injections, you're thinking about neuro, you're thinking about uh, neuropathic pain, right? Correct. Okay. And then the idea there is you have this inflamed nerve or, or, or inflamed nerves, and you're trying to provide some anti-inflammatory effect to let the inflammation kind of calm down and, and hopefully improve the pain. Is that right? Yep. Okay. And then the radio. Are, yeah. Yes, sorry, I was just saying, so the injections that we do, for let's say facet blocks or a sacroiliac joint injections, they're they're not only possibly therapeutic, and you can have sacroiliac joint pain and you get no long-term benefit from steroids because steroids don't work, but they're really the gold standard for diagnosis. So they're diagnostic in, in as well. And they may also be facilitative. So they can improve um 
you know, your ability to participate in physical therapy, improve your sleep. So you're, you're, you're more active and it can prevent or reverse deconditioning. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And you, when you say diagnostic, you mean if someone has pain and you think, gee, that might be from your SI joint and you go and you put some local anesthetic in the SI joint and the pain gets better, that's a, in some ways helping with your diagnosis that yes, in fact, that was the source of the pain. Right. It, it, it's very helpful, but, but diagnostic blocks are, are very, they're inherently limited because, so let's say for lumbar facet pain in somebody who's less than 50 years old, the false positive rate of a single lumbar facet block is higher than the true prevalence rate. So in other words, if somebody has a positive block, statistically, it's more likely that it's a false positive block than a, than than a true, true positive, positive yeah. block in, in certain you know, demographic groups. Okay, interesting. And then you mentioned radiofrequency ablation. So this is when you're actually burning the nerve roots, right, with radiofrequency? So we, we wouldn't burn um, nerve roots. We burn nerves that don't have um, motor fibers and they don't have like a beta sensory fibers. We don't want people to be weak, to have a, you know, neurologic motor weakness or numbness. So these are then just isolated pain nerves. Um, mostly. I mean, they may also have like proprioceptive properties. Okay. And, you know, I've always thought this was so interesting. You would think that burning a nerve would cause pain, not, not help treat it, right? So why does it help? So people used to do radiofrequency ablation for neuropathic pain, and it's rarely done now because of the exact reason that you brought. So if you, if you burn a nerve, so these people with neuropathic pain, right? They had nerve injury. Maybe they had shingles. Maybe they have HIV or diabetes. But many people with those conditions don't, don't have pain. So these people may be genetically and psychologically predisposed. And then you injure their nerves more. So first you're injuring the nerves further and they're already predisposed. Every time you burn or you injure a nerve, there will be a neuroma. Now the neuroma is not always painful, but it's certainly a, a big source of pain. And then you can also have the affrontation pain. So when, so when we know this from uh, like phantom limb pain, so, you know, there's no longer a limb, but there's still pain in the phantom limb. And there's lots of reasons there could be peripheral spinal um, and cortical mechanisms for that, like reorganization. Your, your body is, is used to receiving input from this body part and sending efferent um information back out and then all of a sudden the body part is gone or it's denervated so we generally reserve radiofrequency ablation um you know for nociceptive conditions where there's no you know normal you know a beta fibers or motor fibers in, in the nerve and why does it work there i mean you're still causing a neuroma right why does that neuroma not produce pain So, um, because it, it's not a primary sensory nerve, it only is transmitting um, nociceptive in, information. So you're, you're not getting like spontaneous ectopic discharge okay. of, of, of fibers. Um, but you can, people do get neuritis, so they get temporary inflammation. It, it feels like a sunburn and it could last for, you know, for up to two weeks after after ablation, radiofrequency ablation. Okay. And then the other thing is that radiofrequency ablation tends not to be a permanent fix, right? So after, at least for some people, even though you've destroyed that nerve, the pain will eventually come back sometimes. And why is that? If the nerve's not there, does it regrow? Yeah, you get re-innervation and regeneration. Okay. All right. So we've talked about nociceptive pain, how there are obviously medications, there are... Um, certain blocks uh, and radiofrequency ablation, depending on the site and the type of pain. 
we've talked about neuropathic pain and and how often things like epidural steroid injections can be helpful as well as medications that are more geared towards neuropathic pain that you've mentioned. Um, gabapentin, for example, is commonly used for that. Uh, antidepressants you mentioned can be used for that. Um, how about nosoplastic pain? What are the treatment modalities for that? So a couple of things. So antidepressants are really unique. So they work different than anticonvulsants. Anticonvulsants, they're effective for seizures because they stop injured nerves in your brain from firing. And if you have injured nerves in your, in your legs from diabetes or some other neuropathic condition, they can stop those nerves from firing. So they're not very effective for non-neuropathic or nosoplastic conditions. Antidepressants, on the other hand, um, they work by inhibiting pain signals. So they enhance descending um, inhibitory signals. And because you don't have specific pathways for nociceptive, neuropathic, or nosoplastic pain, they can work for all types of pain. So for nosoplastic pain, in general, the same treatments um, for neuropathic pain are effective. So antidepressants, membrane stabilizers. There's a couple of differences between nosoplastic pain and other types of pain. So people with nosoplastic pain, because the primary problem is that their nervous system is overly sensitized. And like I said, they often co-occur. So in the 2010s and, and 2000s, you know, there were a whole bunch of studies looking at neuropathic components, different conditions like arthritis or degenerative disc disease. And they usually came up with numbers like 10 to 15% of degenerative disc disease or knee arthritis is neuropathic in nature. We know that those are probably now, they're partially nosoplastic in nature. So nosoplastic pain can co-occur with some, with, with other conditions. People with a sensitive nervous system can really have arthritis. They can herniate discs and, and have sciatica. Um, but in general, with nosoplastic pain, injections and surgery are, are usually not very effective. There's a, a, a high failure rate. One other difference in, in nosoplastic pain is you have to be very, very careful about putting these people on, on opioids because there's some evidence that, that people with let's say fibromyalgia, they have high endogenous levels of, of opioids to begin with. So giving them more opioids is not likely to be effective. And again, opioids, they're basically hyperalgesic at baseline. And giving them more opioids, which can cause hyperalgesia, is not going to, to help. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are what is the kind of mainstay of treatment for um, nosoplastic pain? Is it uh, antidepressants? So, I mean, there are lots of different classes of, of treatments and, and pharmacological drugs are, are just one of those classes. So um, you have to try to, so, so that, that is one, antidepressants, membrane stabilizers um, are also effective. There's a high co-prevalence rate of sleep abnormalities in people with no supply, with, with chronic pain in general, but especially with no supplastic pain. And if you're sleep deprived, it actually increases your pain sensitivity. So you have to kind of address some of these things. Um, a lot of them are, are deconditioned. So low impact aerobic exercise is really important because it can, it can prevent or even reverse deconditioning. People who exercise may sleep better. And that's a big, huge problem, especially stage four sleep dysfunction in people with nosoplastic um, conditions. It can help with, with weight gain, it stimulates your natural endorphin. Yeah. Okay, so lots of things. What you mentioned membrane stabilizers. Give me an example of that. Um, anticonvulsants, uh, okay. like gabapentinoids. Gotcha. Okay, so this is great. And I think, you know, obviously there, we could talk about any of these things a lot more, but this I think is a really helpful way to kind of categorize it and then think about some of the treatments along the way for each of these. Let's talk about what's on the horizon. What do you think we're going to see in the next... 20, 30 years um, when it comes to treatment of different kinds of pain? So I think that um, in the future, pain medicine will be more personalized. In other words, treatments not, 
merely based on symptoms, imaging, or even diagnosis, but on unique phenotypic, maybe even genotypic characteristics of each patient. The future will, will hopefully provide a, a framework for instituting an interdisciplinary approach to pain management in a practical and cost-effective manner. So there's some evidence that interdisciplinary approaches to pain are more effective than uh, you know, unimodal approaches. Um, the problem is that they're not cost-effective. So this could involve individually tailored psychotherapy, not only for individuals with chronic pain, but for those with acute pain at high risk of transitioning to chronic pain, and even for vulnerable patients before high-risk surgeries. It will probably involve more biological therapies, such as monoclonal antibodies and regenerative therapies um, that address the underlying mechanisms of chronic pain rather than just the symptoms. In other words, these could be disease-modifying agents. In general, um, you know, pharmacological treatment, I think I brought this up before, you know, maybe mechanism-based rather than disease or etiological-based and involve precision-targeted treatments with minimal off-target effects. For example, there's many, many different types, more than a dozen, of sodium channels. Sodium channels. and But only some of them um, are really implicated in pain. So if we target some of these sodium channel subunits rather than all sodium channels, um, there could be less side effects and they're better tolerated. I also think that, you know, we have a perverse reimbursement system in the United States and it rewards the indiscriminate use of injections and surgeries. And I think that that has to change because it's not sustainable. Not only is it not sustainable, but it, it has an adverse effect on access to care for other people because it's almost the default position that insurance companies just deny treatment. <clears throat> um, so I think that there has to be some type of physician accountability for outcomes in whatever form is logistically feasible. <clears throat> yeah. So what about, that's great. What about, you know, uh, I think in, in the, in psychiatry, there's just a ton of, of interesting things coming out around alternative treatments for things like trauma, PTSD, depression. So I think there's now, and I'm sure you know this better than I do, but I think there's now a, maybe it's a nasal inhaled ketamine treatment for, for depression. I know there's a ton of work being done here at Hopkins and elsewhere on psychedelics for PTSD. Uh, it seems like there's a new article coming out about that almost every day. Is any of this, uh, you know, all, I mean, in the sense that I guess there's always, as we've been talking about the biopsychosocial model, right? If you can treat the psychological conditions, you're going to help the pain too. Is there any thought that any of this stuff um, will be in use on an outpatient basis for chronic pain in the future? So, so that's a really great point. So some of the first studies ever for chronic pain, I remember one in the early 1960s in Lancet for headache looking at antidepressants, um, where it was a controlled trial. So almost everything that's effective for depression is effective for pain. So ketamine antidepressants, um, you know, things like uh, RTMS, which is repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, DCS, electroconvulsive therapy in certain contexts. And it's really interesting because I was also the chair of the ketamine guidelines from the ASA and, and AAPM in 2018. Ketamine is a really fascinating drug because you can do surgery with ketamine. You can amputate a, a, a foot with, with ketamine because of its anesthetic properties. Um, and there's multiple studies that look at um, quantitative sensory testing with ketamine. Quantitative sensory testing is when you're looking at pain thresholds, pain tolerance to all different stimuli, like chemical, could be you know heat, cold, mechanical, and some people who get ketamine, and it's very dose-dependent, will have intermediate-term benefit. So they'll have pain relief four weeks. But there's over half a dozen studies that look at quantitative sensory testing for ketamine after 48 hours, and almost all of them show no difference. So in other words, ketamine, 48 hours, it's a, it's a drug with a short half-life. So 48 hours later, 
does not result in higher pain thresholds or pain tolerance for almost any stimuli, but some people feel better. And that's because probably in the long term, this is my opinion, ketamine, there are different components of pain. So the one that, that we're most familiar with as anesthesiologists is the sensory discriminative component. But there's also affective, motivational component, i.e. the emotional um, part of pain. And there's a cognitive evaluative component. And that's why people with cancer pain, it's really, really awful. So there's more nerves, more pain nerves are firing after surgery than with cancer, right? There's no specific cancer pain pathways. The FDA has said many times, right? Can't, there's no pathophysiological basis for cancer pain to be different than, you know, uh, non-cancer chronic pain. The difference is in the, this cognitive evaluative thing. People with cancer know that they may not get better. So I think the ketamine works more on this affective component of, of pain. Okay. How about psychedelics? Well, well ketamine is, is also a psychedelic. So drugs, it works on the same receptor as encyclidine or, or, or PCP. And so okay. that's also a really, really big area. And I believe that there's more evidence, probably in the long term at least, because some of them work on the sensory discriminative component as well, and they can raise um, pain thresholds, but probably it's because of this affective motivational component, maybe even the cognitive component, like how you view pain. Okay. And uh, is that similar also to MDMA and psilocybin? They're, they're all a, a little different, but I, I think that most of them probably in, in the long term will work more on, on the non-sensory discriminative components. Okay. Well, it will be interesting to see. Well, Steve, thank you. This has been really great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Let's move to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something that you have been listening to or reading or checking out lately that you would recommend to the audience? So we uh, recently got Netflix and um, my wife, Karen, and I were, were watching two series and they're, they're wonderful. One we just finished, which is Queen's Gambit. And it's mm. really relevant because I used to follow chess. I used to play chess. I have two um, great kids, maybe a little on the nerdy side, and, and they're interested in, in chess. And it, it's just, it's wonderful. And the other show that we're watching is called Shtisel. It's uh, an Israeli show. There are subtitles, but it's, it's internationally acclaimed. Yeah, I've heard. So I've watched Queen's Gambit. I agree with you. Amazing show. I have heard a lot about Shtisel, but I haven't seen it. So I'll put that on my list as well. Um, great recommendations. And, you know, I'll recommend something a little different that if folks have not, don't already get this or haven't checked it out, uh, the New York Times has a morning newsletter and you can sign up for it and it'll appear in your inbox every morning. Uh, it's written primarily by uh, a guy named David Leonhardt and it's just so well done. It's really, it's short. I, I read it while I'm walking from my car to my office every morning. So it probably takes about, you know, while you're while you're walking and paying attention to other things 10 minutes if you were just standing still reading it you could probably do it in five but it's a nice encapsulation of kind of what's going on in this country in the world just some interesting facts about a couple different things he usually focuses on one major topic and then gives you some updates on other ones it's a nice little piece of, of news to just catch up on things each morning so i recommend checking that out all right steve thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show thank you so much for having me jed and have a great weekend. All right. That was fantastic. Such a great opportunity to learn from one of the true gurus in the field. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let us know what you thought. Go to ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And we also have a Facebook group and an Instagram page. We're doing great stuff. Check it out. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make individual donations anytime you want by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Wolpaw or Jed Wolpaw on 
Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really, really appreciate it. Huge thanks, as always, to our tech lead, Dr. Brian Park, to our social media manager, Ryan Okonski, and to our production assistants, Dr. Kimia Kashkuli and Dr. April Liu. We could not do it without them. And a big thank you, of course, to the man who composed our original ACRAG music, Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAG podcast and Dr. Steve Cohen, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.